Hey, if you want to grab your Bibles, the passage today is Matthew 25. Matthew 25, we're going to be hitting verses 14 through 30. We're going to be hitting some other passages as well, but this is where we're going to just stay anchored for the majority of the morning. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. This has been traditionally called the parable of the talents. And uh, we have a lot to unpack, so I usually do a, you guys know me, I like to do an introduction, but I'm just going to roll right into the passage. We're going to skip that. And uh, we're just going to start right off with chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 14. I'm going to start reading as you continue to find your place. For it will be, and when, let me just preface here, this is Jesus talking, and when he says for it will be, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away, and he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had uh, the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents, and here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here. You have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Verse 28, So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word for us this morning. Well, if we were to start in the previous parable, what we would have seen is it's the, uh, it's the parable about uh, the ten bridesmaids who are waiting for the, bro- the, the bridegroom to arrive at midnight. And it's really a parable about being ready. It's a parable about preparedness. And so what we're doing is we're kind of on a theme right now. We decided to take the parable that falls right after that, which continues in this theme of being ready for God, ready for the return of Christ. And what this parable is showing us is that readiness manifests itself into responsibility. Okay, so what we just read is that there's three servants, 
They were given three sums of money, and these sums of money were called talents. A talent would just would have been uh, what would have been known as the, lar- the largest amount of currency available in the day. It wasn't a small amount of money either. It was, it was like a large amount of money. So you think of whatever the, the largest currency of money we have now is, and I don't know because I didn't do my research on that. Um, and I should have because that's what you pay me to do, but I didn't. Um, so, um, but here's the reality is that I, I think back in the day they used to make $1,000 bills and those were the biggest, those are the largest sum of currency that we had in America. I don't think they do anymore, but you can think of it in that sense that these were large sums of money that the master had given uh, these servants. And what we see is that two of the men, man, they did well. They invested well. They left, they came back, they multiplied the talents that their master had given them. And then we see contrasted this other man who's given one talent and he goes and he buries his talent. He makes no investment that even gives him back simple interest. So what happens is the master returns after a journey, after a trip, after a period of time of which he wasn't present with his servants and he's calling on them to settle their accounts, right? And the two men who multiplied, who doubled their talents, they're commended. They're commended for their fruitfulness, for their faithfulness in doing what the master had entrusted them to do with the money he gave them. And then, of course, the other man, the man that was given one talent, the the other servant, he is condemned for not being faithful for what the master had given to him. He's condemned for being slothful. He's called wicked and lazy. And so what we're really, the big idea that we get from this passage, even from the very beginning, is that fruitfulness is evidence of faithfulness. Someone claiming faith in Christ without any fruitful evidence of their faith will one day come face to face with a God that in reality they have no relationship with at all. And that's really the big idea behind this passage for us today is that a fruitless Christian is an oxymoron. A fruitless Christian is kind of like a a waterless lake. Now, I grew up riding motorcycles back in the day in Southern California, and we always went to this dry lake that was called El Mirage. Um, And and I think it's self-evident, even if you don't have a working knowledge of Spanish, what that means, right? The Mirage, right? And what happened was you'd come up on El Mirage. It was this massive dry lake where we'd ride our dirt bikes. And as you were even 10 miles away, it would would appear to be like this full blue, you know, water-filled lake until you got up to it and it was, was, you know, dry and cracked and dusty. There, there There was nothing about it that resembled a lake, Um, To call it Lake Mirage would have been an oxymoron. It wasn't a lake anymore. It just had the appearance of a lake. But in reality, there was no water in it. There were no boats in it. There were just dirt bikes in it. And so what we see here as we look at the passage is this. God is a gracious master who commends fruitfulness, but he condemns fruitless indifference. And what's interesting for us and what's sobering for us and what is going to cause us some measure of, you know, swallowing hard by the end of the sermon is that we find ourselves in one of these two categories, right? One of these two categories. But what we're going to do here is we're going to start with God because this is where the passage starts us with. 
It starts us with God, and the Bible always starts with God. And we see here at the very beginning, the master, which is really supposed to be representative of God to us, we see that the master is a a gracious master. And what we understand by that is that God is a gracious master. And what we saw here is that servants were entrusted with a particular amount of money that what? Well, that wasn't theirs, but it was given to them according to the ability and the talents that they had. And the master gave them that money, just like God gives us particular gifts and abilities with the expectation was that they would invest wisely and they would invest responsibly and eagerly and actually joyfully, right? And so again, the master here is supposed to be a representation to us of God who gives, listen, what he already owns to people he's bought with a price to further his kingdom. So if the kingdom of God is the good life with Jesus, which we've been explaining the last four weeks as we've gone through these parables, if the kingdom of God is the good life with Jesus, then it must be people that are living life for Jesus in the sense that the talents and the abilities and the gifts that they have are being used for the furtherance of that kingdom. Why? Because it is the good life that we now have and we now experience. And we want to see other people Experience. Now, I don't know if you were like me, but when you were a kid and maybe you had a mom or maybe you had a dad and they just, and they wrote your name on like everything, right? They name tagged everything. I, I don't have the, the underwear one is weird to me because I, I never figured out like who's going to grab my underwear and why my name needs to be written, you know, on the, in the band on my underwear. But, uh, you know, my mom would write my name on everything, right? This belongs to you know, and they, they, they put your name there. Maybe that was your uh, experience. What's interesting for us is that everything that you have is actually just like when you were a kid and you really didn't own anything. So like kids, something you guys should probably know right now, which is going to be super sobering and like a massive bummer to you right now, is you don't own anything. You own nothing. Your parents own everything. It's horrible. Your parents own everything. But just like that, it's the same with God. God is the owner. He owns everything. There's nothing we have of which we shouldn't get a name tag and put that tag on that particular item and say this belongs to God. Yeah, you're you're slow today. You're slow today. But everything belongs to God. And that's the big idea here when we see the master who represents God for us is entrusting these servants with, these, with, this, with this particular amounts of money. And what we know about God is that God doesn't relinquish ownership. He doesn't at some point just say, you know, man, I'm tired of the, the wear and tear and the maintenance that comes with all of these things that I own, that I give you, you take it. And he never does that. But what he does is he establishes a relationship with those he gives to have stewardship over all that he has. It's a gracious thing that God does for us and that he entrusts us with things, with blessings, with abilities. Psalm chapter 50, verse 10 through 11 reminds us of just who God is and what it is exactly that he owns. It says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. So what this is meant to show us is that God has dominion and ownership over everything. Over everything. 
And our place in that is kind of like the difference between renting and owning in some ways. So there's a sense, I don't want to take this too far, but there's a sense that we are, we are, simply, we are simply renters. And by, by renting, you know, there's a benefit to renting, isn't there? Because we get to enjoy what somebody else owns, and they are the ones that still maintain ownership and dominion over it, but we get to benefit from their ownership of it. And that's what it's like if you find yourself as a follower of Christ who has received certain giftings, who has received certain blessings, who has received certain amounts of money based on your skill level and your career and the things you do, to use those in a way that shows your readiness for the coming of Christ. And the reason why we can do this, and the reason why we can do it with joy, like we see these first two men, is because God is a gracious master. Because secondly, he commends, he commends faith-driven fruitfulness. And we see that with these two, two men that he commended. Now, what's interesting about this is that God gave each of the first two men, actually all three of the men, he gave them different gifts he gave them different talents according to his own goodwill and pleasure and their ability. Now, the focus here, listen, because we can get lost in this a little bit. The focus here is not on the money. The focus here is on the master. It didn't matter how much they made. God never said, hey, you know what? I got a quota and I have demands. And if I come back and you haven't doubled the amount of talents I've given you, then, you know, we're going to have a talk. He doesn't say that. They just went out and they were fruitful with what they had. It didn't matter really how much they made, but whether they made much of their master by anticipating his coming and taking very seriously that he would come back to settle their accounts. I like to do this. I like to visualize sometimes what it might look like in heaven. Now, this is not accurate. There's nothing biblical or scriptural about this image that I'm about to throw out there. But I always visualize like a, a lineup in heaven at the very end when we're facing the Lord. And I picture a guy like Billy Graham, right? You got Pastor Billy Graham, right? Like probably the most famous pastor that America and maybe the world, I don't know, has ever known besides Jesus, right? So you have Pastor Billy Graham and right next to Pastor Billy Graham, you have you know, Pastor Billy Bob, let's just say. Now, everybody's heard of Billy Graham, right? I mean, just millions of people selling out stadiums, a ministry that has seen so much fruit. God gave Billy Graham so much to Stuart. He entrusted him with so much. And then right next to Billy Graham, you have Pastor Billy Bob, who God gave a congregation of 35 people to, that he maybe pastored for 50 years. And he looks at both of them and he says, well done, Billy Graham. Well done, Billy Bob. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We, we see him with this equity. We see each of them being commended, not for how much they produced, but that they produced according to what they were given. So in the end, it was well done, good and faithful servant. What does it mean for God to say well done? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? It means that we have shown fruitful evidence of our faith that stems from a love 
and affection for our faithful Savior. Because that's what you see here with these first two men. And you know what they're given in the end? When their master comes back, they're given affirmation and they're given acceptance. He affirms the work that they have done. I entrusted something to you and you were fruitful with it. And now I accept you into my presence. And what does he say? He says, well, here's your reward. He says, enter into the joy. Enter the joy. Have you guys ever entered the joy? What do you think of when you think of like entering the joy? I mean, I know what kids think about. I mean, I'm probably half the adults in this. I mean, you, you think about, you know, you think about like the magic kingdom. You think about the big castle. You think about entering in to something that is going to thrill and delight your soul, right? You think about entering into something that's going to be a thrill and a delight. And this is what the master is saying. This is what God is saying. He is saying, here is joy. Here is the entrance into my presence. And this is what is supposed to motivate your fruitful producing. And that's what he's saying. So the reward for these two servants, these two slaves that were entrusted with varying amounts um, according to their varying degrees of ability, they were faithful, they were fruitful, and the reward was the faithfulness of the master to bring them into the joy of his presence. So God commends faith-driven fruitfulness. But he also condemns something. Because we see this in verse 24 with the other servant. He condemns fruitless indifference. He gave this other dude one talent. One talent. And it's interesting that when he goes to settle accounts with this guy, this guy immediately makes a defense. He makes a defense for his lack of fruit, and he does it by mischaracterizing his master. He said, well, I knew you were this harsh guy. I knew that you sow where you, where you're, where you haven't sown, you reap where you haven't reaped. And he makes sort of this mischaracterization of his master. How do we know it was mischaracterized? Because we see the way the master just treated the other two servants, right? But what's interesting here is what does the master do? Well, the master rebukes him and he refutes his logic. He refutes his logic. He says, look, brother, if what you thought of me was actually true, that I am this harsh master, why didn't you at least make a minimum investment so that at the very least I would receive some interest from the investment? If you really thought that I was who you thought I was, then you would have been motivated to do something. There's a very interesting lesson in there for us, right? Because those of us who follow Christ um, we can tend to mischaracterize God very easily, can't we? We can paint him into a corner and, and sort of make him out to be this harsh judge who's just waiting to condemn, who's waiting to come down on us because we're just not getting it done. And that's just not what we see in this at all. What we see here is that fruitfulness comes from relationship. It's rooted in relationship. And the end of the day, this brother with the one talent never had relationship with the master. There was no love for the master. There was nothing there that motivated him to go out 
and to responsibly ready himself for the coming of the master. And you know what happened because of that? You know what happened because he lacked faith and because he lacked faith, his faith wasn't put into action? You know what happened? Uh, you know what happened on the heels of that? He mischaracterized the actual character of who his master actually was. And his reward was outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. So let's be clear. It was a lack of love for his master, not a lack of fruit that condemned the servant. Because if he would have been a servant that loved his master, the evidence of it would have been faithfulness and fruit. I remember there was this time, uh, you know, I had to mow the lawn as a kid like, like most of us do. Um, and I've since then given that up and let my wife do it. Um, but when I was a kid, I had to mow the lawn. And uh, this is Southern California, so this is like a four times a year scenario because nothing grows out there because there's no rain. And I remember one time my dad leaves for work in the morning and he says, hey, I need you, you know, today's the day, it's summertime, need you to mow the lawn, you know, if you can, if you can spend that six minutes and do that before you, you know, go off and play all day. Um, and so he comes back home that night, I'm in the garage uh, with my bike and, and there sat the lawnmower and there was the lawn, you know, unmowed. And he looked at me and he said, what is this? And I said, what's what? And he goes, didn't I ask you to mow the lawn? And I said, oh. I said, yeah. I go, sorry, I, I forgot. And he's like, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't work for me. That, that doesn't work for me. And so at the end of the day, what I realized um, and, and, and what, what my dad was communicating to me without getting to all the gory details, it wasn't that the grass was still a foot high. Was it? That wasn't really the issue. The issue was that I showed a lack of love and care for the one who cared for me, for the one who owned everything that I owned, for the one who had cared for me and fed me and bought me bicycles and clothed me all of my life. And there was a responsibility that I had to steward some of the things that he had given me and I failed to do that. So it wasn't that the grass was long. It's just that my love for him wasn't very long at all that day because I was just thinking about myself. I was thinking about what I wanted to do. I was thinking about what was most important to me. But what was most important to him that day was that that lawn got mowed, not because he cared about lawns. If you knew my old man, you would know not a high deal for him. But what he cared about was my care for him. What he cared about was my love and my joy for him, which was at a low. So, man, sermons like this, right? Oh, my gosh. Sermons like this. Let's just chat about this for a second, all right? Because sermons like this can be used to manipulate, right? They can be used to manipulate through guilt. Let me just say this. Jesus does not manipulate through guilt, right? So churches preach sermons like this, and then like the next day, all the sign-up sheets are full in all the ministries, right? So this is what I'm going to say to you guys. Don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, do we need helpers in the children's ministry? Darn straight. We do. We do, but that's not what I'm saying today. 
That's not really the, the, the gist of this. That's not the momentum of this. Guilt is a bad motivator. And I want to touch on this because it matters. Guilt is a horrible motivator. Joy is not joyless service. That is not joy, right? So for me to say, all right, man, you're hearing what God's telling us. We all have gifts. We all have abilities. Get that pen, sign that sheet. No, because that's not what this is saying. That's not grace. That's not mercy. That kind of motivation is what leads churches down a path of thinking that, man, I just got to earn it. I just got to earn it. I just got to earn it. And that's not what this passage is talking about. And we don't preach that here. We don't preach earning. But we do preach effort. We do preach effort. And God is saying, those who have been changed by my grace will serve me by the grace that they've been given. And they will put forth an effort because their heart has been changed and is changing for me. But here's what the problem with guilt, right? If we do things motivated by guilt, these three things happen. Number one, we dismiss God eventually. We dismiss God by thinking, you know what? I, I can just do all this by myself. Um, I, I am making my own path. I am making my own way. I do have my own strength. Guess what? I'm scratching out his name. This does belong to me. That's something that guilt can produce. Secondly, we mischaracterize God because you think at the end of the day that all he wants is your service. And the problem with that line of thinking is that God doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our money. He already owns all of those things which is what we just said right in the beginning. This third servant with the one talent just thought that's really all the master was interested in because when he came back, he was going to be a harsh guy. And then thirdly, we end up, if guilt is our motivator, we end up despising God at the end of it. We end up coming up with this heart that despises God because you know why? We can't bear that burden. We're not people that were meant to bear the burden of just working and earning and working and earning. Again, like we talked about last week, that's, a, that's great in the workplace, right? We go to work, we earn, we get paid, but it's really, really not how the economy of God's kingdom works. So the question is, how do we live in readiness for Christ by living out our responsibility to be fruitful Christians? That's the question that this leads us to answering. And I usually have three points, but I'm going to give you guys a break today. All right? I got one thing that we're going to flesh out, and it's simply this. We do this by growing and abiding in our love and labor for Jesus. We do it by growing and abiding in both our love and labor for Jesus. Fruit, listen, fruitfulness alone is not an entrance into heaven. It can't be. That would mean that Jesus had no purpose in coming and dying on the cross if fruitfulness, varying degrees of fruitfulness, is what gave us entrance into heaven. Fruitfulness is the result of Jesus entering our hearts and redeeming our affections for him. And i got to go back to the example with me and Pops with the lawnmower. It's one of my least great illustrations. I get it. But it illustrates something. Because in that moment, there was a panic that came over me inside. And it was, oh no, is he going to punish me? Is he going to punish me? What's he going to take away? Which one of my bicycles is he going to take away? 
It was missing the point. It was missing the point. He didn't punish me. He was sad and grieved because my heart had not been given over to his desires. There's a difference, right? This brings us to John chapter 15, which says this, Jesus speaking, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's a stunning verse for us. So we attach... We attach as branches to the vine because without Jesus, we don't bear the right kind of fruit. We bear fruit that is motivated by self-interest and earning. And so some of the objections that rise up as we're trying to figure this out is we say, well, hold on, Ronnie, what, what about people who attend church, they serve in ministries? I mean, what are you saying? Like, aren't they fruitful? Well, yeah. They may be outwardly fruitful. They may be inwardly fruitful. But their fruitfulness could also be something that is not in response to God's faithfulness. And in fact, coming into a church is more about like being in a fraternity rather than a family for them. It's just something that they can identify with. It's something that they can benefit from the blessings with. Maybe you find yourself in this place. Maybe you just like it here. Maybe this just kind of fits who you are. Maybe you've just found a home here, and we're super pumped about that. We want this to to feel like a home. Feelings matter. Emotions matter. We want this to be comfortable in in the right sense of the word, which is why you have those lavish chairs that we've provided for you every week. We want you to feel comfortable. We want want this to feel like a family. Some of y'all treat it like a fraternity, which is something that can just make you feel good about being where you're at in life. So, again, to hear a message like this and merely run out and get busy for Jesus is missing the point. You know, if you see a tree, right, and it's been planted and it's a beautiful fruit tree, and for years it hasn't produced any fruit, what do you do? What would you you do? What would be the logical next step? Well, I'll tell you what you wouldn't do, okay? You wouldn't, like, run to Bueller's and buy a basket of fruit and some masking tape and get a ladder and go up and start taping fruit to the tree. Would you? I I mean, that would be ridiculous, right? Why would that be ridiculous? Because that's not real fruit. That's just the appearance of truth. What would you do? What would you do if you saw a tree in that condition? Right, so if we're asking the question about how do we live in readiness for Christ by, by uh, living out our responsibility to be fruitful Christians, what would we do? Well, we would water the tree. Oh, my gosh. I'm the least scientific person in the room, and I'm telling you, like, I know what to do. I'm saying you would water the tree, right? What does Psalm 1 tell us? What does the first psalm uh, in Scripture tell us? about those who meditate on God's word and live out his law. He describes these people 
as trees planted by streams of water that yield fruit in their season and their leaf doesn't wither. And then in all that they do, they prosper. Because at the end of the day, what Jesus talks about all the way through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the difference between a healthy and a diseased tree. Let's turn back to Matthew 7. And look what he says here. Matthew chapter 7, picking up in verse 17. He says, every tree, healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And then he says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And then he gets into maybe what might be the most sobering passage in all of Scripture for us. Let's read it. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me. Notice what he says there? He says says, who's verbally, who gives lip service, who talks to God, who tries to make a defense like we saw the man with the one talent. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does what? The will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Completely a different thing than what he said to the two faithful, fruitful men when he said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's turn to James chapter 2. Because we want to make sure we're thinking rightly about these things. James chapter 2, all the way towards Revelation, the book of Revelation at the end. James chapter 2, I'm going to pick up in verse 14. This is what James reminds us of. He says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? He says, Can that faith save him? And then bump down to verse 18, and then he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. And then James says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith. What does he say? By my works. I will show you my faith by my works. So the expectation then is that faithful people will be fruitful people, like fruitful trees as we just read in Matthew 7. Now look, I'm, I'm not a tree expert. I think I pointed that out pretty clearly a few minutes ago. But if my wife ever decides to plant a peach tree in our yard, which I would be in her debt forever because I, I love peaches, um, but if she ever planted a peach tree in our yard without telling me, let me just be honest with you guys, all right? Let me, let me confess something to you right now. I'll have no idea it's a peach tree until it starts producing peaches. Like, I'm just not up on all of my treeology. See what I'm saying? See what I'm saying with that word? I'll have no idea. I mean, it might be nice to look at, but until there is fruit on the branches and I can eat peach cobbler, the tree won't be fulfilling the purpose for which it was created. So then that begs the question for us as we're thinking about, well, hey, what does it look like to be fruitful? Well, well what, what, is a, what does a fruitful tree do? What is a fruitful tree like? Well, three things. The first thing when you see this big, in bloom, blossoming fruit tree is that it's inviting, isn't it? It's beautiful. You want to pick the fruit. You want to eat the fruit. Secondly, it's good to pick and eat. The fruit is good. It's been well-maintained. It's been well-watered. 
And secondly, it's not just about eating the fruit. It also extends beyond just the pleasure of eating the fruit because what do you get at the end of eating a peach, for example? Well, you get a seed. You can plant that seed. And another tree can be produced to be beautiful, inviting, and good to pick and eat. So see, like trees, we were created to give glory to God, to be beautiful and inviting, to have talents and abilities that are good for others and for ourselves and for the furthering of God's kingdom so that they might be planted in others and then extend to others. So that's what we were created to do. We were created to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our souls. We were created to be justified in him and be righteous through him by the grace he gives to us like he did these servants through Jesus to use our gifts and our abilities to make God known to those who don't know him. Because before that moment, man, we're just living in disobedience. Before that moment, according to what Jesus says here, we're wicked, slothful servants. So we have to finish this morning by asking this question. What will Jesus find when he returns to settle the accounts of our lives? We have to ask that question. Man, we should swallow hard when we consider this. This should cause us to work out our faith with fear and trembling like Paul instructs the church in Philippians 2. Because you know what, man? All of this is a matter of life and death. All of this is a matter of life and death. Man, I got a phone call yesterday and learned that two people I know are facing death. They're facing imminent death. They're sick, and it doesn't look good. Everything's a matter of life and death. And these two people that I found out about, they're massively successful people. Just crazy successful people. Life and death. What matters to them right now? Life and death. Life and death. In the end, what we learn from this parable is that God will either be our joy or our judge. Our joy or our judge. So a true son or daughter of God, man, they're just going to work hard with the talents God's entrusted them with, aren't they? They're going to joyfully and responsibly work with God's gifts for the cause of Christ because of what Christ did for those of us who were once lost causes. That's what changes everything for us. Not earning. Christ did that on the cross. But effort to show, to illustrate, to be reflective of what's been earned for us. So when God saves us, we take the talents he's resourced us with to further his kingdom. Why? Because we've been saved from this kingdom. We've been saved from the kingdom of the world. 1 John 2 says... The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's a seismic shift in the heart of a Christian where they begin to have a desire to obey God, and by obeying him, we grow in the righteousness of him forever. But here's what's interesting. When we talk about faithfulness, when we talk about fruitfulness, fruitfulness requires risk. 
It requires risk. When these servants went out, it was risky. It was a risky endeavor. How sad to bury your treasure. How sad to bury your treasure. We look in horror at the third servant who had the one talent. He was given one talent. It was a lot according to his ability. He buries it. It's sobering. It's also sad, isn't it? We have nothing to lose if our lives are found in Christ and our eternity is secure in him. We have nothing to lose. We get to enter the joy. We get to enter in the joy of Jesus who is the greater joy. What did the master say? He says, because you did well with little. Little? The one dude had five talents, the other guy had two talents. That wasn't little. That was a lot. In earthly terms, it was a lot of cash. But he said, because you did well with so little. Why? Because what they were going to enter into when he returned was so much more. Psalm 4, 6-7 says, There are many who say, who will show us some good? And the psalmist says, God, lift up the light of your face upon us because you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. It's okay to have grain and wine that abounds. And we're Americans. Most of us have abounding grain and wine. But there is a greater joy. There is a more bountiful blessing. There is a richer treasure. You notice the master didn't say, come to greater blessings. Come into more talents. What did he say? He said, enter into what? The joy of me. That's what he said. He said, I'm the greater joy. I'm the increased blessing. I'm the richer treasure. And the reason why we know that it's true is because of Jesus. Because Jesus was the faithful and the fruitful servant who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross so that we might become faithful, fruitful servants who abide in him with a growing and increasing affection for the one who eventually we will enter in the fullest of joy with for now and for all eternity. That is the hope. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the sobriety of the gospel. We thank you for the importance of hard words. We know that hard words make soft hearts. So today, Lord, as we pray, we want to pause. We want to be reminded of Christ, first and foremost, who for the joy set before him humbled himself, became a sacrifice for us, became the ultimate fruitfulness, displayed the ultimate faithfulness, 
so that we might be faithful, so that we might be fruitful, so that we might be a people that live in gratefulness and thankfulness for everything you've given us in Christ, for a people that take the blessings and the richness that you've given us and don't hoard it and don't bury it, but use it so that people might see the riches of Christ that are on offer for them. So God, loosen. Loosen our grip that we have on our talents because they're not ours. God, remind us of who has real ownership over our lives. And Lord, take ownership over our lives because we don't find joy when we are trying to rule them. But Lord, we struggle because we're sinners and we want to have control and we want security. We want a security that we have convinced ourselves is true security. But we see here in your word that it's not true security. There's only one security, and that is relinquishing our lives to you, who has true ownership over all things. God, thank you that this is such a gracious truth and reality for us, that we don't have to bear the weight of ownership, that we don't have to bear the burden of earning, because Christ has earned all. But Lord, we want to extend faithful effort We want our faith to be evidenced by fruit because we know this pleases you and it gives you glory and it gives us joy. So change us, Lord, in these ways. I thank you for the generosity and the fruit giving that already exists here. I thank you that when I think about our congregation, I think about the ways that we extend the gifts and the abilities we have, Lord, there's so much generosity there. So, Lord, thank you for changing us. Thank you for creating this longing and this desire for you that allows us to give of what we've been given. I pray that it increases. Lord, I pray that our joy and our expectation for your coming increases. And, Lord, I pray that in all of these things, God, that we would be ready and that we would be expectant for the joy that awaits us because we have found our hope in the cross of Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.